Welcome to the Complete Sinner's Guide. This is the show where we sinners like yourself dig deep into Christian theology and answer all of your questions in a totally imperfect way. My name is Noah Chalai. Delighted to be here with you. Joining me is your host, the one, the only, Tyler Fowler. Hey, Tyler, welcome into the program. What? What is going on, Noah? How are you doing, my friend? Hey, man, I'm doing great. This is going to be a great episode. I think we finally found our groove. We're digging in, and, uh, you know, it's really interesting because there's all of these other shows that are talking about biblical theology, that are talking about Christianity. Uh, they concentrate on some of the very basic aspects, and what I'm so excited about you uh, and our guest, Kennedy, this hour is that, hey, we're going to dig a lot deeper, and we're going to start digging into the stuff that are uncomfortable, things that people don't want to talk about, things that may be a little controversial, and so we just invite you to, to join along in that discussion, participate if you'd like to, add feedback. You can catch the show uh, by going to completecenters.com. There you'll find a contact form as well as all the articles and references that we talk about during the show, all of the scriptures. Those references will all be found in the show notes. You can find those, again, at CompleteCenters.com. Uh, Tyler, tell us about our guest that's coming in this hour. Well, here's the thing, okay? We are going to talk about some, you know, very, very controversial subjects this evening, um, namely oneness Pentecostalism. And the reason I'm actually over the phone is because me and my wife are celebrating our one-year anniversary in Indy right now, Indianapolis. And we just got in skydiving, so I'm, I'm amped. I'm ready to do this. Um, with me, I have Kennedy, Miss Kennedy Nicole. Um, we've been talking for a little while now about this issue. And, uh, well, she's going to come on today, and she's going to tell us her story. So, Kennedy, how are you doing? Tell the viewers about yourself and how you've been doing. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be part of this. Um, I am just a country gal from Northwest Ohio. I'm 20. I uh, I have I was homeschooled. I graduated two years ago. I was in India for five months last year on a missions trip and learned a lot while I was there, not just culturally but spiritually as well. And it was a very a very good learning experience for me there. So um, yeah, since then I've just been teaching piano and uh, yeah, it's been good. Good deal. So teaching piano. And now, so we're, we're going to dive right in because we have a very short time to really bring this out. And I, I encourage Oneness Pentecostals to listen. I, I encourage Trinitarians to listen. Um, if you're not even a Christian, I encourage you to listen because the one, in th- the one and only thing that we've all really got in common, every single person, is that we, like I was talking about last time, we all feel the sense of guilt, we all feel the sense of sin, that we've either sinned against God or sinned against, you know, whatever you believe in. Um, but, but that's the thing we all have in common is this guilt, and how do we get rid of this guilt? You know, this, you know, Jesus came 2,000 years ago to, you know, die on the cross, to live a perfect life, and to raise from the dead, to be able to justify people and reconcile them to God. Um, and and if, if I'm not mistaken, Kennedy, that's, in a sense, what oneness teaches. Now, we're going to get into the differences. Obviously, there are some very, very big differences um, that I've noticed how they redefine faith, how they redefine their words whenever they talk about God and Trinitarians talk about God. We're talking about two different things here. Um, so I want to start off by let's just give the audience a very simple definition of the word Trinity and where in the world it comes from. Actually, it's very interesting because a lot of oneness people that I've talked to, they actually say that the Trinity comes from the Council of Nicaea. Have you ever heard that before, Kennedy? Or how did, how, how was you taught that the Trinity came about, so to say? Because you, they, they teach it's a man-made tradition, obviously, a pagan tradition. 
Um, so how, how did your, in India, how did that work? Um, what did they say about it? Right. Um, when I first encountered oneness doctrine, um, this oneness uh, person didn't identify themselves as oneness, but they did say, I deny the Trinity because God is one. And for me, that seemed a little strange just because growing up as a Trinitarian, I've always known that God is one, you know. Um, and so they will say, you know, God is one, um, but that's what they'll say um, in contrast to the Trinity as if that's not what we believe. Um, but that's that's not true. So um, they'll say um, the tr- doctrine of the Trinity is pagan, as you said, and I have heard that they believe it came from the Council of Nicaea. But that's that's most of what I know from what they believe about where it came from. And you know, okay, so we know the claim that it's not found in the Bible. Right, right, and see, and that's obviously. I mean, it's so. I hate it because the words "Jesus is the Father" is not in the Bible, but we don't use that as an argument because it's an argument from silence. And to say that the Trinity is not in the Bible, or even the concept of the Trinity is not in the Bible, it's just a false statement. So where did the word Trinity come from? It comes from a man by the name of Tertullian. He lived, we think, he lived from 155, and this is A.D., this is 2nd century, to 240 A.D. Scholars have came, and they have come together, and this is the date that is the majority of, you know, that's accepted among the majority. Um, and, and that's where Tertullian, he was a guy that he, there was a lot of stuff about him that was bad, but there's a lot of stuff about Tertullian that was actually good. Um, we don't believe that the, you know, church fathers, and what I mean by that is the disciples of the apostles or the disciples of you know, within the second century, we don't claim that they're, you know, infallible. There's only one thing that's infallible, and that is the Word of God. It's completely true. Um, so we don't hold them to the same standard as we do the Bible, but it's always a good thing to look back at history. So whenever Tertullian, he came up with this Latin word, Trinitas, right? And he used it to, this is what the Bible is teaching, even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's not. There's just no, you know, there's no argument to that. It's not in the Bible. But, you know, but whenever Tertullian, he was trying to form this concept of how do I say that there's one God, because that's the thing that oneness people, they believe that, it seems like they believe that we don't believe in one God, that we're tritheists, and that we actually believe in three separate gods, which that's not true. Um, Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, and, and then just a simple definition of the Trinity, it's within the one being that is God. We all agree that there's one being that is called God. There exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's from James White and the Forgotten Trinity. Um, go ahead, Kennedy. Did you want to say something else? No, no, I'm just in agreement with oh. you. Okay, so you would agree with that definition. Within the one being that is God, there exist three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and that's namely the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son, Jesus, is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. But yet these three persons within the one being is all called God. You would agree with that, correct? Right, definitely. It's it's very hard for oneness Pentecostals to uh, try to come to terms with the concept that one being can be three persons. It just because it doesn't make sense to them, they kind of have resorted to just thinking of God as one person. Sure, right. And it seems to me like 
you know, we, we are dealing, you know, we are creatures created in the image of God with a limited, we, we do have a limited mind in, this, in the sense that we don't know everything. And whenever it comes to God to be able to say, oh, well, I'm, I, the things that I can't understand about God, I'm just not going to believe because they're too hard to grasp. I don't think that's fair to the Bible in the way that God's revealed himself. He's revealed himself in a very specific way. And we need to, as Christians, be open to the fact that, you know what, God may be just a little different than we are. Um, and when, whenever it comes to that, you know, with him being in person, um, what what is the difference between being in person? Really, what we're talking about here for you guys just tuning in is we got Kennedy and Nicole online, and we are talking about one is Pentecostalism. And the difference between being in person, I'm going to use another James White quote, is, well, paraphrase, is that everything in this world has being. For you guys that are just now tuning in, everything, a lampshade, a pop bottle or soda bottle for you Southerners, everything in the world has being, but not everything has personhood. What I mean whenever I say personhood is that my cell phone, for example, it does not know that it's one cell phone and my many cell phones, for example. It doesn't know that it can work for the betterment of cell phone kind. So that's what we're talking about whenever we distinguish between being and person. Again, we all believe in one God, but we just say, Trinitarians, that there are three persons within that Godhead. Kennedy, go ahead and explain to us what exactly oneness is in the sense of modalism. Like, what is it? What, what do oneness teach about God and the Godhead? Sure. Um, so a lot of times um, it seems that when I introduce oneness doctrine to a person who has never heard of it before, their kind of immediate reaction is, oh, they must not believe in the Father and the Spirit, you know, like if they only believe in Jesus. But that that's not necessarily true. Um, basically, if I can describe the difference on a very fundamental level, um, as Trinitarians, we believe that God is that there is only one living God, and he exists eternally as three distinct subjects or persons. They would say there's only one living God, and he eternally exists as one person who manifests himself in different ways, and, and it can be anything at any given time. You just never know. And so I don't say this to mock them in any way, but I've said this before, that you sure. know, from their perspective— God can be father today and hot dog tomorrow. You just never know who he's going to be. And and to me, that is the ultimate unknowable God. You just don't know, you know, he's he's unpredictable. I mean, he's unpredictable in certain ways, but we we need to be able to predict who God is and be to be able to teach that based off of how God has revealed himself in scripture. Sure. It almost sounds like that, you know, we have the Bible verse that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Well, if he can just switch between Father, Son, and Spirit, which that really interests me. Correct me if I'm wrong, please, but does oneness teach that Jesus is the Holy Spirit? Oh, yes. Yeah. So Basically, like if you know the the well-known uh, Trinitarian diagram that shows, you know, God is the subject or the being, and then it branches off into the Father, Son, and Spirit. Basically, they replace the word God with Jesus, and then it branches into Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's very interesting. Okay. Right, which is, well, it is very interesting because, see, Jesus, now he's risen from the dead. He's in a glorified body, right? 
And I know, which I didn't, I never understood the concept of how can Jesus, because we all agree that the Holy Spirit, he fills us, he indwells us, you know, he comes to make his abode with us um, as Christians in Ephesians 1.13, by faith, you know, we receive the down payment of the Holy Spirit. I've always wondered if Jesus is the Holy Spirit, why haven't I seen a guy walk up to me, you know, claiming to be Jesus in this glorified body and then say he's going to get in me? I, it, that doesn't make sense to me. Is that, I, I don't want to misrepresent what they teach, but is that a problem with oneness? It's a very valid concern because, um, yeah, we know that Jesus uh, took on the human body and he should be in that right now. And, uh, you know, the passage where Jesus is saying um, that they all may be one as, as you are, in, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So this, this, there's a struggle there with the fact that Jesus has a physical body and it's obviously impossible for that to indwell a person. Sure. Um, I'm just flipping through my Bible real quick and I was going to do something with John 17, but I actually want to turn to John 16 uh, first. Um, Trying to find it real quick. Um, But basically it's the verse that says Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says that he is going to send the the disciples another paraclete another comforter and mm-hmm. to me i mean it, here's the thing with with reading the bible we're going to dig into some scriptural ev- evidence for the trinity real quick but just reading the bible in john 14 15 and 16 there is definitely i would say a conversation going on between three or well between two persons and you know three whenever jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. In verse 7, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We don't speak like that if we're not talking about somebody else. Why didn't Jesus just say, I will come to you? Um, Another one. No, go ahead, please. No, I'm agreeing with you, but yet there is actually a passage where um, Jesus says, it may actually be in that same chapter where he says, um, I will come to you. Now, I think there's some speculation in what exactly he was referring to. He may not have been saying, you know, I am the spirit, I will be coming to you, of course. But um, what do you think, Tyler? Would he be referring to when he comes later, um, as in what we refer to as the second coming? Well, honestly, in the context of the passage, are you talking about whenever he says that me and the Father will come to you, or is it just Jesus whenever he's saying, I will come to you? Um, I I think what he's referring to there is is figurative language. We've got to realize that we don't take the Bible, and I would have to look at the passage to double-check on that um, again. But to me, it seems like there's, within the Oneness Pentecostal group or the movement, take a lot of verses literal. For example, um, whenever Jesus is talking to Philip, he says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, right? And they seem to take that passage, well, Jesus is saying that I am the Father whenever he didn't say that. He's saying, I and the Father, we're one. We're one in unity. We're one in essence. We're one in being. And what's what's really interesting, oh, wait, wait, here we go. In verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. 
Uh, do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, which is interesting again. But, but yeah, to answer your question, I think Jesus is talking figurative um, in that it, he promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus is omnipresent. He's God. And whenever Jesus comes to us, it's not, in, again, I've, I'm, I've been saved for four years now, and I've never seen Jesus in a glorified body come to me. I don't think anybody on this show has. Um, Great. You know I mean, so does that answer your question? I hope. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, so anyway, let's, I, I do want to look at John 17 real quick. It, I mean, I think this, you know, and, and here's the thing, okay, I don't want to just proof text, all right? I want to take these passages into their context. We might be going through these really, really fast um, because we don't have a lot of time to really dig into this. But I think one of the passages that really stands out to me is John 17, 22. And he says this, he says, the glory that you have given me, this is Jesus talking, I have given to them, the disciples, that they may be one, even as we. Notice the word we. We are one. That is first person plural, okay? Jesus, if Jesus was the Father, he never would have said we. There has to be two distinct persons going on. We, As Trinitarians, we never say two distinct beings because it's polytheism, right? So, but with the, but we do see the plurality within the Godhead, such as, um, you know, let us create man in our image. Then God created man in his own image, right? There's a singularity, but there's a pluralism. And I, and I listened to a debate between Roger Perkins and James White, and, the, and, and Roger Perkins, God bless his heart, but he kept saying over nine or 6,000 singular personal pronouns. That's fine, but you've got to deal with the person or the plural pronouns as well. You can't just boot them out the door. And we see that Jesus talks about the Father, especially in the New Testament, that Jesus always refers to the Father as Father. He never refers to the Father as himself or his divine side. And he always refers to the Holy Spirit as somebody else. I will send another comforter in my name, um, and, and he will indwell you. So, uh, okay, so is there, like I said, Kennedy, is there anything you wanted to add to that, uh, to the biblical evidences? I know we're going to get into Hebrews here in a minute, but. No, John, uh, John 17, as I told you before, it's absolutely my favorite passage for, um, uh, I guess, refuting the oneness doctrine. And I remember when I was in India and I was struggling with, uh, you know, Trinitarian or oneness, I was like, you know, God, I just. I don't care which one it is. I just want to know the truth and I want to know you. And I remember my pastor um, had emailed me and said, Kennedy, you need to go through um, and read through John where Jesus is speaking and, and ask God to show you how, you know, he's making a distinction between the father and the son. And uh, at the time I wasn't really sure why that would be significant, but it's definitely, definitely something I um, number one recommend to anyone speaking um, the issue of oneness and Trinitarianism, because um, it's it's by far my favorite to uh, to discover how Jesus reveals the Father to us. Right, and it, exactly. It is. I, I think it's key that we have to um, we we have to realize as creatures we need to be humble enough to accept God on His terms. You know what I mean? He sent. You exactly. know, he 
for, for John 3.16 is the verse that keeps coming to mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I just, you know, God didn't say, I mean, granted, God did say that he would come to us in the Old Testament, yes. But it also says you can't just take, like what I was talking about a while ago, you can't just take one verse out of the New, our Old Testament and then completely forget about a text that's in the New Testament, which is why I wanted to get into Hebrews. Um, in Hebrews chapter 1, we, in my, and this is just my opinion, but it makes perfect sense to me that we need to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The, and especially here, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, it says, well, let's go back real quick. Uh, verse 8, it says, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews was, but he writes these words. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And he's quoting the Old Testament here. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the uh, foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. We know, according to Colossians 1, 6, or 115, 116, that Jesus is the one who actually made the world and everything in it, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions. But, it, it, but go back to this verse in chapter, or verse 8, in chapter 1 of Hebrews. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Drop down to 9. You have loved wickedness, or you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. If oneness Pentecostalism were true in, the, in their theology of God as one person and one being, who in the world is God's God? We have to answer that question. It makes perfect sense for a Trinitarian to speak of, okay, well, this is just the Father speaking of the Son, which is very interesting. The, the Father is actually calling the Son God in this passage. But we have to realize what the writer of Hebrews says. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, right? Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Who is God's God? Does God have a God? Is there more than one God? And that seems like it would be a very big problem for oneness Pentecostalism. Was that ever a verse that my, my, so my question is, that's a long statement, but my question is, Kennedy, has that verse ever been brought up to you, whether in you know, defense of the Trinitarian formula, or in oneness teaching, has how how, how do they interpret that verse? Right. You know, I have never been presented with this passage uh, by a oneness Pentecostal, um, but I have uh, been. It, it's been recommended to me from um, Trinitarians. So yeah, for us, just like you said, it makes sense to us, but to them, I, I can see them stumbling over this passage and. Um, uh, yeah, thou Lord in the beginning has laid the foundation. You know, not only um, is he declaring the Son to be deity, but it's making the claim that the Son is eternal. Your throne is forever and ever. And another aspect of the oneness doctrine is that they actually claim, at least some or most of them, I don't know if it's 100% of them, but I have heard that they believe that the Son was created. As in, you know, the sun is not eternal, just like they think, you know, the sun was a plan in God's mind prior to the incarnation. So this, you know, this clashes with that notion as well. We see that the, the sun in his role as the sun, 
he's fully God, but he's been the son forever and always will be. Right, exactly. And which brings me, you actually brought up something. Um, you, you said that they say that, that well, I, I, I know I said I just wanted to, you know, make in passing John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, now when does Pentecostal say the Word? That's a plan in God's mind. Is that right? Right. Okay. So here we we need to be able to refute that. We have to go to Colossians 2, 9. Okay, and, well, I'm sorry, Philippians, wow, my bad, <laughs> Philippians, let's see here, 2, 5, and 11, says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Words do not humble themselves. Words or plans, I'm sorry, plans do not empty their self before. I so wholeheartedly believe that you can't read this verse and say that Jesus didn't, that the Son didn't exist before the incarnation, because I've heard that speak, uh, you know, I've heard that from various oneness uh, Pentecostals that, well, you know, the word, that's just a plan in the mind of God. He didn't exist yet, yada, yada, yada. Um, But here it clearly says, and so my question is, how does a plan, something that is not personal, that is just hanging out in the mind of God somewhere, how is a plan empty their self? How does a plan take on human nature um, except sinless? And how does a plan to do all these things if he didn't? And see, we say he, like he's a person. We, you can't make that distinction because it's just, it's so silly. It almost sounds like, and I'm not, that, let me make one thing, you know, clear for anyone who is just tuning in. We're talking about one is Pentecostalism and we, we're not trying to batch it. Okay. We're really not. But the fact of the matter is, and, the, and anybody out there who wants to, you know, not confront, but approach a oneness or approach anybody. We don't have to be afraid. Why? Because we have truth and truth always overcomes. The light shines on in the darkness and we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be, you know, standoffish to people who believe different with us. We have to present them with the truth in a loving and kind way. And that's why we're doing the show is sure I can speak for Kennedy and Noah both. And the fact that the reason we're doing this is because we love each and every person listening to this, and we want them to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, I mean, that's just, it's that simple. We're not trying to bash anybody, and we're not trying to, you know, make people hate us. We're just trying to get the truth out out there. Love demands truth, and that's, I mean, that's that's the cost. Um, So I guess we've got a little bit left. Um, Kennedy, let's go ahead and get into your story. I'm sure the listeners would want to hear what, so what, so you said that is India where you encountered one's Pentecostalism for the first time? It actually was the second time, but it was the first time that it actually clicked for me. So I mentioned before that a lot of Christians have trouble understanding 
what the oneness people actually believe. Just by the title oneness, they think, oh, they only believe in one of the three persons we believe in. But like I said, that's not true. Now, when I was maybe 16 or 17, I was in a Christian belief sort of apologetics class um, with some other people from my church. And um, I don't know why, but for some reason, I guess I just didn't, I didn't glean quite as much from that as I could have. It was not the teacher's fault or the, you know, the by fault of the material in any way. It was a good course, but I remember we did briefly cover um, the Trinity as opposed to other doctrines people believe. And I had forgotten that I said this in the class, but one of my friends reminded me recently. She was like, you know, when we were in that class and uh, the leader asked you what your thoughts were on the Trinity, you said, oh, I, I feel like I worship some three-headed uh, idol or something. And I had forgotten that I had said that. But apparently, even back then, I was having trouble understanding the concept of the Trinity, although I've been raised Trinitarian. And to be quite honest, I hadn't known prior to that class that anyone believed anything other than Trinitarianism. Um, and then when I was in India last year, from July to December, um, early on in my trip, it finally started to make sense to me. And it it, it became just more, I, I understood it much better. And um, I really, really had a tough time. Um, I was struggling very much um, because in my heart of hearts, I just wanted to know God. Like it wasn't about being biased or anything. In a sense, I did kind of feel shortchanged because I felt like I hadn't received adequate teaching um, on both of these doctrines. Now that's not the fault of um, any church I've ever been in or any leader I've ever had. Um, but I myself just didn't feel the need to seek it out very much. Now, um, it took me months to get to the point where I was confident that oneness doctrine no longer made sense to me. But um, I would say that I did, I, I did uh, identify myself as a oneness, and uh, journal entries from that time will uh, testify to that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, it's been it's an ongoing process of continuing to learn. And for a while, to be honest, as I would read the scripture, if I would come across a verse or a passage that kind of seemed to make more sense with oneness, I would, I would, I would read it with uh, colored lenses, so to speak, uh, oneness glasses. Like I wanted it to make sense with oneness, but eventually uh, by the grace of God, he helped me to see um, all of the other passages that really, really, don't make sense with oneness. So like I said, it's an ongoing process, but I'm still learning. Sure. And yeah, and it seems, okay, so hear me out real quick, right? I just listened to a book by David Bernard, and God forgive me, but I forget the other guy who wrote it. Josh, I think something. Uh, forgive me. I, I for, I'm, I'm horrible with names, but I do know David Bernard because I've been listening to him all week, trying to understand oneness position. Mm -hmm. And he's got a book that's called On Being One or On Being Pentecostal, right? And throughout the entire book, my wife and I were actually listening to it on Audible up here um, all the way to Indy, three-hour trip, right? So we had time to listen. And what was sad is that there was no exegesis of the passages. All that were all that there was was David Bernard or or, or the other guy for you know whoever wrote it, but they would write, but the whole book was written in a style that they would quote a passage, right? And, and they, they wouldn't even quote the verse. They would just quote the, the book chapter and number or in, in verse, right? 
like that's it, like first John or see first John two one or something. Um, yeah. And, and what's what's really interesting is it was just a book of proof text. There was no, you know, there was no exegesis of it. There was no evidence for their position. All they would say, they would make their statement like water baptism, which is what we're going to get into here next. Water baptism is necessary for salvation, according to Acts 2.38. And they would say, see Acts 2.38. And that's it, right? No exegesis of the passage, no nothing. So, well, let me ask yeah. you this, Kenny. As a oneness Pentecostal during it, right, why in the, or what passages stood out to you the most um, that, oneness, that, that oneness had to be wrong? You know, to be honest, regarding the apostolic doctrine, which I know we're going to get into in a second, uh, that's the, you know, necessity of uh, water baptism and, and tongues as evidence for salvation. I'm not certain that I was fully convinced of that, because to be honest, <laughs> growing up and being taught, you know, that we're saved by grace through faith, it really, I really, really struggled with believing God would put that kind of um what's the word, that kind of requirement on us. If we're truly saved by grace and it's truly through faith, then this does not make sense to me. And so to be honest, I'm not sure I was fully convinced of that, but the oneness issue I really did struggle with. And I would say that I was oneness during a short time while I was in India. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now you, so this would be a perfect time to get into what is the difference between oneness because I've heard of both oneness doctrine and apostolic. I've heard them used as, you know, if somebody were to tell me, oh, I'm Pentecostal, or oh, I'm oneness, or oh, I'm oneness apostolic Pentecostal, or there's just a whole variety. Okay. I know and I understand that if somebody says they're Pentecostal, you can't automatically assume that they're oneness because there are some Trinitarian Pentecostals who still believe in speaking in tongues, who still believe in baptism, but they would say that baptism is not necessary for salvation and that someone will not speak in tongues as evidence of, you know, the initial indwelling by the Holy Spirit, or uh, spirit baptism, as the one that's called it. So what is the difference between oneness and apostolic and Pentecostal, if you don't mind, real quick? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, uh, for anyone listening, if you encounter someone who claims to be Pentecostal, and I've actually done this before, I'll ask, you know, well, do you mind sharing what denomination you are, or um, I'll just say outright, are you apostolic? Um so that's a good question to ask. The oneness that we've been talking about so far refers to their belief about who God is. Now, there, as in, you know, he's only one person who manifests himself and takes on different forms. Um, the apostolic doctrine uh, refers to their belief about salvation um, as as they try to quote it from Acts 2.38. Now, if, if you look at Acts 2.38, it gives instructions to people seeking on, you know, how to be saved or whatever, and um, uh, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, um, my paraphrase. And so that's what they'll say. Um, usually, um, if you were to ask a Pentecostal what you have to do to be saved, you'll find out really quick whether they are oneness apostolic Pentecostal or if they're Trinitarian Pentecostal. But yeah, that's the basic difference. The oneness refers to who God is. The apostolic refers to what salvation is. So whenever we're speaking about apostolic doctrine, we're talking about the water and uh, immersion, uh, immersion in Jesus's name as this formula for salvation, right? And also the initial evidence of spirit baptism. I'm trying to use their words, okay? So the initial spirit or the initial evidence of the spirit baptism is speaking in tongues, and that's apostolic doctrine, right? 
Now let me let me clarify because this just came to mind. Uh, they do call themselves yeah, apostolic sure. because they also they also believe that the oneness doctrine is the original belief of the apostles. So that is probably connected. If they call themselves apostolic, you're about guaranteed they believe in oneness and they believe in the Acts two thirty eight works salvation. Right, and that's interesting. I actually want to bring up a letter from Ignatius. Okay, and this is why I was talking about him a while ago. He says this in this quote to his letter to the Trillians, it says this. It said, now, this is the longer version, but this is what it says. They also culminate his being. Now, this is, they is the Gnostics, right? These, these people who are, they're out there, okay? They're not Orthodox Christianity. This is who Ignatius is talking about. He says, quote, they also culminate his being born of the Virgin. They are ashamed of his cross they deny his passion, and they do not believe his resurrection. They introduce God as a being unknown. They suppose Christ to be unbegotten, and as to the Spirit, they do not admit that he exists. Now listen to this. Some of them say that the Son is a mere man, and that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are but the same person. Uh, Ignatius ends in, quote, be on your guard, therefore, against such persons. And I think that's a loud statement from history. I really do, because he. it seems like that passage, some of them say that the Son is a mere man, which from apostolic oneness Pentecostal doctrine, they, correct me if I'm wrong, Kendi, but don't they say the Son is the human nature of Jesus Christ? Right. And so then when you say, well, what about when Jesus was praying, who was he talking to? They will consistently tell you that Jesus was praying to himself because they just, if this is the word conglomerate, or they just mix um, the Father, Son, and Spirit as being the same person. So when you say, well, the Son is talking to the Father, so obviously if he's both the Son and the Father, he's just talking to himself. Right. And it and it would seem that way that would... Technically, with their theology, wouldn't it just be Jesus talking to himself if the Son is praying to the Father, the human nature is praying to the divine nature? Is that, wouldn't that be Jesus talking to himself? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, another thing I've wondered, um, we're told that Jesus was praying and fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, and I'd like to know, you know, I actually, and I was talking to a oneness Pentecostal about this once, um, I was saying, what was the point of that? You know, if he was just babbling to himself, like, what was he accomplishing? And um, their response was, well, why would you just say it was babbling? I mean, he was he was praying for strength uh, for what he was about to face. And my response was, strength from who? Like, if he's asking for strength, it's going to be from a distinct source other than himself. Right, exactly. And it would also make, the, it would seem to me that it would also make the, the, the conversations between the Son and the Father a complete joke. If he was just speaking to himself, such as in the Garden of Gethsemane, and such as in the gar, or, or, or sorry, on the cross. I mean, we know that Jesus was praying to the Father on the cross, right? If he's just talking to himself, it's almost as a big joke because who is he praying to? Who is he going to get strength from if not from himself? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so here we go. We're going. Let, let's let's go ahead and transition. We've only got about 15 minutes left. So let's go ahead and transition to what does oneness teach about baptism? What do they teach about speaking in tongues? And I know we've kind of hit on that. But, Kennedy, if you want to go into detail, what verbatim, right, 
what is the teaching concerning baptism? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, Acts 2.38 before, um, they they take that um, literally and verbatim. Now, when I say literally and verbatim, um, I mean that they, and, and you mentioned their uh, eisegesis earlier, eisegesis meaning that they apply their own interpretation or they come with their own presuppositions. So right, they, uh, right. they interpret Acts 2.38 with their own presupposition that when it says be baptized in the name of Jesus, that it's saying the pastor must speak the name of Jesus over the baptism in order for it to be legitimate. Um, but the issue with that is historically, uh, we know that in the name of means by the authority of or um, uh, because of, and and so uh, and actually that's in the original. Um, the original Greek that it was written in, the word in there does not mean anything is spoken. It simply means that it's done because of or through or by or whatever. And so, um, and uh, I know, I think you and I have discussed before the fact that there are actually various Pentecostal churches that, um, or apostolic churches that will separate themselves from other churches, other apostolic churches, because they're baptizing in the name of Jesus instead of in the name of Yeshua, or whatever original name of Jesus you want to think right. of, they're like, oh, no, no, right. you've got to go to the original and baptize that way. And so, I mean, while I disagree with that idea, they are actually being consistent with their claim that you must baptize verbatim in the name of Jesus. And they do believe that uh, in regenerative baptism, meaning that uh, your sins are actually forgiven and cleansed upon being submerged in the water and baptized with the name of Jesus being spoken. Right, and it would seem like to me, because I've actually ran into a group, I can't remember who they are, um, but they would say that, you know, the verse that says, uh, Romans 10, 9, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, right? It says, you need to call upon the true name, right? Like, Yahashua ben Yosef, right? That's what Jesus' name was, Yeshua, right? And it says, if you don't call upon the name, the true name of Jesus, Jesus wasn't it, right? We know, we know... From what some people may say, the Bible was not written in King James English in 1611, okay? That's not the inspired word. The inspired revelation was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And you're right. The name of Jesus in Greek is Jesus, right? Jesus Christos. Christ isn't even his – that's what uh, – Christ isn't even a name, right? Christ is Jesus' title. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one, right? So I just thought of that, right? Like. Do they say baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, Kennedy? Uh, they do. And, you know, this is another thing that's been brought up by various uh, um, Trinitarians. There was a, a video I had seen of someone explaining this, that um, there are, in the book of Acts, you know, let me say this. The one that's Pentecostals will yeah. say, oh, all throughout the book of Acts, people are only being baptized in the name of Jesus. And while that may seem to be true, <laughs> the various passages where people are baptized in the name of Jesus, sometimes it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord. In other passages, it says in the name of Jesus. And so uh, there's actually even an inconsistency with that. Like, which one should it be? The name of, you just say the Lord over the baptism, or do you say the name of Jesus over the baptism? It's very interesting. Right, and I actually, if I can find it just off the top of my head, um, yeah, here we go. I actually went through the book of Acts. And I compare because oneness, they love to refer to the book of Acts um, for all their, um, it's like, guys, there's more than, there's more than one 
you know, there's more than one book in the Bible. Um, but so it, since they like to refer to Acts so, so much, I actually went through the book of Acts and labeled it, everyone, if not almost everyone, of uh, people being saved, baptism and Jesus, or, or I'm sorry, and speaking in tongues, baptism, speaking in tongues, and people being saved, the recorded document. I get Acts 2, 1 through 4. The 120 Jews in the upper room were already believers, received the Holy Spirit, evidenced by tongues of fire, the rest is literally upon them, but no mention of baptism in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans whom Philip preached to, they believed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Second, were baptized, and third, received the Holy Spirit. No evidence was recorded, just Luke saying they received the Holy Spirit. We know later the apostles went back, laid their hands on them, and they started speaking in tongues. Acts 9, Acts 9, 17 through 19, Paul first believed. Second, received the Holy Spirit, evidenced by scales falling off his eyes. And then third was baptized. Paul also preached Jesus powerfully in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Acts 9, 32, 35, the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw Aeneas healing by Peter and turn to the Lord, no mention of baptism or evidences of the Holy Spirit. It's actually really interesting. I don't want to go through all of these, but anybody listening can go through the book of Acts, and really the small amount of percentages of, of the people who recorded as being saved by Luke, right, because we know Luke wrote Acts, there's only a minority of both baptism and evidence by speaking in tongues within the book of Acts itself. Um it just doesn't seem if they want if if they want to say you know we need to do Acts two thirty eight down to the books. Well, Acts ten Cornelius received the the Holy Spirit before he was baptized, right? So what in the world? What what do they do with that? I mean, is, is that an issue for them or not? Um, they don't actually make a huge deal of which order uh, the steps in Acts two thirty eight are completed in. Um, and I actually had a one Pentecostal lady admit that to me. She would say, you know, it doesn't matter if you speak in tongues before your baptism. Um, it just means you've received the baptism of the Holy Ghost before you were water baptized. Um, so, yeah, that's they would just say it's not important whether you're baptized by water or spirit first, just as long as both happen eventually. And, you know, that's so the we... concern that there are a lot of uh, Pentecostals, if they have never spoken in tongues, they are really searching hard because... They're surrounded by people who believe that they are not truly saved until they speak in tongues, which is very sad. So let me ask you. So let me ask you this real quick: um, Do they believe? Do, do the oneness as a whole believe that? Because I know we've got different groups within the oneness Pentecostal movement. We got UPCI. We've got a whole bunch of different organizations within. But does the majority believe that whenever someone is filled by the Holy Spirit, they are saved, or is that not a thing yet until they're baptized? Um, you know, right, they, they, you have to complete every step in Acts 238 in order to be saved. And uh, I actually, um, one thing that was very troubling to me when I was still kind of searching about oneness was I was chatting with a lady and, and uh, explaining to her that a oneness Pentecostal had told my mom she was going to hell because my mom doesn't speak in tongues. She's never done that. And she was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So, um, the lady admitted to me that, yes, my mom would indeed be going to hell because she has not verbatim completed X-238. Well, here's the thing. What's interesting, and let's just refute that right now. Acts 1, or I'm sorry, Acts, Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
and believed in him, right, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we go to Romans chapter 8 really quick. Okay, um, let's see real quick. So basically, if there, so let me ask you this real quick, Kennedy, while I'm looking for this. If there is someone, do they believe that people seek for God on their own? They don't believe necessarily like I do, right, where you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and then you'll want to please God, right? We know that Romans 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? Romans 3 says there is no one who seeks for God, no, not one. Right. So do they believe that anybody can just, you know, seek God and then be baptized, believe or believe, be baptized and then receive the gift? Or do they feel that you need to be called by God first? Or how does that work? Uh, You know, I don't think I've ever heard that they uh, would um, teach any kind of reformed or or like, you know, any of the five points of Calvinism or anything. Um, I know they don't believe in. I'm really sure they don't believe in eternal security. But, um, yeah, as far as uh, needing to be regenerated prior to searching, I don't really think they get into that a lot. Okay. Well, the reason I'm saying this is this. It says in Romans 8 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh. This is Paul talking to the church um, at Rome. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I think that refutes it right there. Um, Anyone who has the spirit of God is saved. Period. In the subject, the Holy Spirit does not regenerate people who are not saved. It just does not work like that, according to Paul right here. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are none of Christ. Well, how do we get the Holy Spirit? According to Ephesians 1.13, it's whenever they believed. So, and that's the consistent message throughout Scripture, as our time is dwindling fast, right? Here, the message is not, what can you do for God, right, to be, to earn salvation? Because if we really think about it, we would say that, well, we have, you know, we have the baptism, we have the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking in tongues. We've done all this. We've sought for God. Well, you know what? God, I deserve to be in heaven. That's not the case. We're all sinners, and this is why this is the complete sinner's guide, right? For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And when we receive Christ by faith, right, the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 1.13, comes in, dwells within us, makes his home in us, and we are saved as a down payment for eternity. Romans eight twenty eight and twenty nine states that for all those whom for all those people, right? Those is the main word in Romans eight twenty eight or twenty nine and thirty. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. For those whom he predestined, he also called. For those whom he called, he also justified. And for those whom he justified, he also glorified. This all happens on the basis of faith. And that is the good news, no matter what. And just to, you know, to end on, I mean, we're almost done already, right? So I think, honestly, we need to do a part two with this. But, you know, that's up to you guys. Um, Kennedy, real quick, how is life after 
oneness Pentecostalism. I know you said you, you dealt with it, you know, for a little bit, and you went through it, and you found the Trinitarian Trinitarianism is actually the truth, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the question, well, let me ask this. The question that I wanted to ask you, the secret question is, if you were to die in a month, and you stood before God, and he said to you, Kennedy, why should I let you into heaven? I don't think it would, the answer would be, well, because I was baptized and because I spoke in tongues. What would that answer right. be, Kennedy? You know, I would, I would think on um, Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31, where the man asks, what must I do to be saved? And their answer was, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of what I've done. A lot of what I've done is some pretty bad stuff, and I would not want to be judged according to my work standing before the throne of God, but to be judged according to the grace of God found in what Christ Jesus did for me is such a beautiful and a comforting thought. You know, I would not want to be in the position of having to explain how I earned my salvation by completing Acts 2.38 verbatim. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Acts 2.38 is a wonderful verse to present the gospel. The reason that I don't uh, revert to that when presenting the gospel is because of the uh, the context that one of the apostles give it. But it's, it's a great verse. It just simply doesn't mean what oneness people or what apostolic people think that it means. Right, exactly. And we know repentance, it's a change of mind, right? Acts, or Peter speaking to the whole crowd in Acts chapter 2. They said, what must we do? We've just realized that, you know, we, or we've always thought that this Jesus man, he was a bur- or not a burglar, a blasphemer, and he, you know, he claimed to be God and we kill him. What in the world do we got to do? You know, they were pierced, it says. You know, in their hearts, they were pricked. And Peter says, repent, repent, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What in the world does that mean? It means to stop thinking, right? Repent means to change the way you think. Stop thinking about the way that you thought about this man, Jesus, and realize he is the God-man who was prophesied about in the Old Testament, who, who brought that to fruition in the New Testament, and who lives on by his resurrection throughout eternity. This is the good news. This is the gospel. For anybody who's out there listening, if you want to be saved, right, first of all, you can't do it on your own. There is no one seeks after God. No, not one. But if you feel this, anything, cry out to God. And my answer would be repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul said it perfectly to the jailer in in the verse that you just quoted, Kennedy. Um, Noah, brother man, you've been so quiet this whole time. What do you got to say in the last couple of minutes? Man? You guys are just, you're covering all the bases. That's the that's the issue, right? You guys are having a great discussion. I'm just kind of enjoying uh, sitting back and learning a lot. And of course, I'm sure as everybody out there is learning a lot as well. If they want more resources, you can find them at CompleteCenters.com. Uh, you can hold over there. That's where all of the articles and scriptural references, we put all of those inside of the show notes. Of course, if you're subscribed to us on iTunes or on Google Play, inside of the podcast player, you just go ahead and scroll down and you'll see all of those articles and references there. You can also follow us on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Colonel Linux. Tyler, you're on there. I think your Facebook uh, on, on there is Tyler Fowler. And um, Kennedy, you want to be yep. outside of uh, the, the Facebook realm at the moment. <laughs> yes. And no, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> 
No, that was just that. Yeah, that was just kind of where we're at. So, uh, what do we got coming up next week? In ten seconds or less, Tyler. Actually, next week we have a really good show coming up. We've got um, Tracy Mathis is going to be on. We're going to be talking about tattoos and piercings. Should Christians get Christians get them? Is it a sin? And if you guys want to, hit me up at CompleteCenter1 at gmail.com. Check out Complete Center's guide, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks, Andy, for coming on. Appreciate it.